G'day you mob, Pete here, and this is another episode of Aussie English, the number one place for anyone and everyone wanting to learn Australian English. So, today I have a GOSS episode for you where I sit down with my old man, my father, Ian Smithson, and we talk about the week's news, whether locally down under here in Australia or non-locally <laughs> overseas in other parts of the world, okay? And we sometimes also talk about whatever comes to mind, right? If we can think of something interesting to share with you guys related to us or Australia, we also talk about that in the GOSS. So, these episodes are specifically designed to try and give you content about many different topics where we're obviously speaking in English and there are multiple people having a natural and spontaneous conversation in English. So, it is particularly good to improve your listening skills. In order to complement that though, I really recommend that you join the podcast membership or the academy membership at aussieenglish.com.au where you will get access to the full transcripts of these episodes, the PDFs, the downloads, and you can also use the online PDF reader to read and listen at the same time, okay? So, if you really, really want to improve your listening skills fast, Get the transcript, listen and read at the same time, keep practicing, and that is the quickest way to level up your English. Anyway, I've been rabbiting on a bit, I've been talking a bit. Let's just get into this episode, guys. Smack the bird, and let's get into it. Dad, what's going on? Eels. Eels. Have you ever eaten eel? I have. I think I ever have. Is it any good? Yeah, just fish. Yeah, it's fish, but it's <laughs> it's sort of oily and um, it's a it's a it's a weird one because it's a strong taste, but not an offensive one. Mm-hmm. But it's very they're very oily. Uh, I always so. remember every time someone talks about eating eel, I remember that Friends episode. Do you know which one I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, unagi. Yes, <laughs> I think it's where yeah. Ross is like um, obsessed with eel sushi or something, and he keeps yeah. saying like unagi. Yeah. And then Rachel comes in and is like, salmon skin roll. Yeah. <laughs> Just making fun of him. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, we got this story here. Freshwater eel research by Arthur Ryla Institute reveals marathon journey to the Coral Sea to breed. So, <laughs> I love these sort of opening lines in articles. Yes. How far would you be willing to wander for a date? Probably not as far as this aquatic animal. Depends on how attractive the date was. <laughs> well, I was thinking I met my- Wife through the internet, and she was more than three thousand kilometers away. Yeah, she actually, was, she was two and a half. She was around away. about the same place that yeah. these eels go yeah, to. Yeah, the Coral so. Sea, right? Yeah, yeah, so she was in Townsville. Um, long and short-finned eels travel more than three thousand kilometers from waterways across Victoria to the Coral Sea, and for the first time, researchers have been able to officially pinpoint where the eels breed. Scientists hoped a better understanding of migratory patterns would help reverse the species' declining population. Um, the recent discovery came amid a research project. Yep. Uh, 20 transmitters were attached to freshwater eels in 2019 at the start of the project. And the tags- tagged eels were tracked over the course of five months and were seen moving all the way from southwest Victoria to the Coral Sea near New Caledonia. So, that is what? Um, off the coast off the, of the Cairns? north coast of Queensland. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, that's the Coral Sea off Cairns and, and yeah. Queensland there. There are so many things about this that blow my mind. Um, Like, besides the fact that you have a small animal, well, at least, like, compared to us, right? A a fish travelling that far to breed. I always love thinking about, like, how the fuck did this evolve? I know. (laughs) I know. How the fuck did you have 
an yeah. eel that obviously migrating is migrating animals. You would that- you, you would think the thing originally evolved in the ocean then and was laying eggs in the ocean somewhere in maybe around the coral sea and somehow they've found they've they've traveled all the way, you know, somewhere and found a freshwater um stream or something to go up to then live its life and then they mm. have to go all the way back home but it's like and that's insane for them to actually have to transition from they go salt water change to, their physiology completely yeah to be able to life. manage the lack yeah. of salt in fresh water and then go back and forth like I salmon know. right yeah and not only that but they somehow end up with these huge distances cuz you're kind of like okay i i could get it if it was the coral sea and then they end up in some river outside of cairns yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> like yeah, we're out the ocean, away. just <laughs> head west yep. until we get to a freshwater gradient, and yeah. then we just follow this gradient up into a freshwater stream. But you're but- like, how the hell do these things not get picked off? Yeah, like I feel yeah. like if I were, and to why try- are they in Sydney? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're in southwest Victoria. Weren't they in southeast Victoria? Yeah, yeah. Well, we yeah. have plenty of rivers, but they're not. So maybe they were hundreds of years ago. Yeah. Um, well, they could have yeah. been hunted out by um, the indigenous people who they could have been ate yes, a lot of them. They did, and that was the other part of the story. But yeah, it it just that aspect of migratory animals always blow mm. my mind because there are so many aspects to it. Often they're changing environments completely. Um, there's how do they navigate from one end one place to the other. And also, what are the what are the triggers? Well, that, that was that was them? what this research was yeah. about. Is what are the cues that say it's time for you to leave your freshwater environment yeah. and swim three thousand kilometres to breed? And I'm assuming I I'm not a fish biologist, but I think I know enough about the this Is species. It ichthyologist, ichthyologist, very good. Um, I think that they only breed once. That these uh, you know, adults will swim out of their the Hopkins River and out into the ocean at Warrnambool and mm-hmm. end up all the way up the east coast of Australia and out into the Coral Sea. They will breed out there and then the elvers, the little baby eels, will at some stage during their life cycle wind their way back and find themselves you know, back in the rivers in southwest Victoria. Only and to they be will, eaten by someone. Yeah, yeah, well, they'll be eaten a long way along the way, but- um, and they'll stay there for the rest of their lives yeah. uh, until they are mature enough, and then they get this signal that says, "Oh, there's war- <laughs> there's a flood here, or whatever." And I think that was the the finding of this article was the um, uh, that seasonal changes, the seasonal right? changes. But how do you, I don't think they're one year old when they go. They're probably there for ten years by mm. the time they grow up and go. All right, it's time to go. When do we go? When there's a flood, which is makes perfect sense. Yeah. When you get that, because you you don't want to be trying to make your way through shallow water that's not moving. I guess it'd so be associated with the La Nina too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it may well have something to do with yeah, water temperatures in the Coral Sea. Um, and they're clearly not going to know what that is. But, mm-hmm. you know, they go, oh, this is a good thing to move now because La Nina is here. And that means there are changes yeah. in weather patterns and so on. It probably means there are changes in currents. So it's easier to swim north. Because the majority of the currents in you know, Eastern Australia are going south, mm-hmm. um, so all of that stuff is probably Just lines tied up, up. Uh, tied up, and they end up there. But the yeah, the interesting part, I think, is the physiology. How do you go from being a you know, a little baby fish out in the marine environment, mm-hmm. and then decide oh, I'm going to swim up a freshwater stream and and completely flip my physiology? Because the basic problem is to do with. Um, Water and salt yeah. moving across your skin surface. Um, so obviously, in a marine environment, you've got a the concentration of salts outside your body is higher. Yeah. Um, so you're losing water constantly, 
and gaining salt, and you've got to have a way of getting rid of the salt and retaining water, and then you switch it over and you into fresh water as a fish, your your concentration of salts inside your body is higher. Yeah. So you're absorbing water and yeah, yeah, you've got to get rid of it. <laughs> and even losing quicker. salt. So um, that physiology switch switch is just bizarre what does it say here so yeah the process is called osmosis right regulating um, the amount of water on either side of a cell um, membrane so that it's effectively equal based on the concentrations right but two organs do the work of of shuttling salt ions in and out of a fish's bodies to counteract osmosis the gills and the kidneys saltwater fish need to take in water to replenish the fluids in their bodies Mm -hmm. but that means they're also taking taking in salt so they've got to get rid of it yeah, so that was the little snippet here from one of these articles, but I'm not sure. I guess they, that would mean that they just have um, either the gills or the kidneys changing the way in which they deal with these salt yeah. ions, be a right? pumping them out or moving them in. in, their, in their, as they're ageing, that changes their physiology, but that in itself is yeah. interesting. Well, and yeah, how do you that. suddenly change it if you're an adult, you've grown, and then you suddenly decide to go back into the salt water, right? You've okay. been in fresh water for decades- yeah. That must be a shock. But I, mean, I would love to know how the hell they, they okay, well, they get the trigger of we need to go, but then how do they know they where to go? They decide that they've yeah. all got to swim north east. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And again, what are you following? The stars? The yeah. moon? Who you knows? Know, like magnetic fields? And yet that those, um, the evolution of those migratory patterns mm-hmm. is sort of really interesting because clearly there is something about the, you know, that Southern Pacific Ocean that it's, you know, it'll be environmentalist to, you know, right amount of food available, water temperature and all those sort of things to breed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are plenty of other fish, freshwater fish in those rivers that breed in that freshwater in that temperature. You go, yeah. why does this particular species need to do that? Well, and that's uh, where I would say as an evolutionary biologist, it's, evolution isn't about finding the most efficient thing, but it's about using what the works. Most of what you've got. And so, yeah. obviously, if they're already able to breed readily in the Coral Sea yeah. and physically they can make that distance and travel that distance, mm. then they're going to do it as opposed to- And there's no evolutionary pressure if they're able to do that easily for them to find somewhere else locally- to breed, yeah. obviously, if they would randomly stumble upon that, then that population would be at a great advantage yeah. of like, well, they, we just lay our eggs yeah, right here. Evolution yeah. hasn't created enough. Well, there haven't been mutations to allow them to do that yet. Yeah, that have been exposed well, that, to the selective pressures. Yeah, so. because there must be huge things too. P- perhaps there's much higher a hurdle evolutionarily for them to be able to evolve eggs that can handle fresh water compared to salt water. Yeah, and that's you know how would you you'd have to be living somewhere where there is constant fluctuations in salt levels, right, from freshwater to salt mm. water for there to be an evolution of um, eggs that could then handle yeah. so less and less. environments. Yeah. Uh, and, and look, who knows? Maybe this- And these are reasonably ancient animals. Yeah. So, maybe over a period of, you know, 100 million years, um, there have been sufficient changes in uh, water temperature, uh, as an example, that- they used to be able to do it from just, you know, travel from our freshwater thing, just whip out into the ocean for, yeah. you know, <laughs> lay your eggs and, and then See you, and then you're gone. And yeah. then when you're babies, you go, uh, yeah, this is all right, but we'd be better off up that freshwater stream. How so do we get we, away from we, the predators? Exactly. We head up there. Um, but that then just became impossible with, you know, the waters cooling in the Southern Ocean and so on. So. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, that's that's quite possibly the way it goes. It's, uh, but it's a bizarre one from that sense because most other migratory um, animals are migrating to retain a constant environment. Yeah. 
rather than so they change to the deliberately season. change. Like, oh, shit, this place is going yeah, to winter, so we need to go somewhere else. We go where to, it's going to be we go warm to the still. continuous summer. Yeah, know? and there's we have. Uh, migratory shorebirds mm-hmm. uh, that come to southern, well, they come to all over yeah. Australia. Come you wonder to Australia how many that come from how many millions Siberia and Alaska. How many millions of years it's been since they've seen winter? Yeah, well, exactly. Because <laughs> they're just constantly yeah. chasing they're, summer. They, right? you know, they they in this particular in the case of some of our shorebirds, they come to Australia for our summer to feed, mm-hmm. and they breed in the northern um, hemisphere in Siberia and Alaska. Other birds like our shearwaters, the mutton birds, do the reverse. They come to Australia mm-hmm. to breed. And then they just go up to the northern hemisphere uh, in their summer to feed. And for each, so, you would probably think, if you guys wanted, there would probably be somewhere for you to both breed and eat. Yeah, just in hang the around in the tropics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's probably, there's surely got to be somewhere closer by that you can <laughs> eat or mate. Yeah, that although, is although the um, in the case of say the shorebirds um, and for um, pelagic birds like shearwaters as well. Um, they're eating specific things that are, um, in in the case of shorebirds, in sand flats and mud flats that only occur in cool temperate environments. Yeah. So they're restricted to eating in those environments. Those sort of things just simply don't occur in the tropics. Um, and so yeah, you get those environments, but the food is different. Um, and so they go through, have a bit, you know, they don't like this, keep going south. Yeah. Um, and the same thing, I suspect, for the pelagic birds like shearwaters where they're feeding on fish at sea um, and they've evolved to feed on cool, temperate fish. Yeah. So, uh, Or even, you know, in the case of moving to the Arctic, uh, yeah, cold water fish. But it's yeah. It's bizarre. Back to the, um, the eels, though. It was really cool reading about the indigenous people. So, the mm. importance, the importance food source... Imports, importance, food source for yeah. me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a badly it, written article. It may be important food source for First Nations. Uh, the research is in collaboration with the region's traditional custodians, the Gunditjmara people, and that's spelled G-U-N-D-I-T-J-M-A-R-A, if you guys want to check it out. So, Gunditjmara Man and World Heritage Park Ranger at Gunditch Mirroring Traditional Owners Aboriginal Corporation, Tyson Lovett Murray, said it can be overstated how culturally significant the eels were to the southwest Victorian Indigenous people. Traditionally, it can't be overstated. Yeah, sorry, it can't be. It can't be. Um, traditional, traditionally, for thousands of years, it was a food source and led to the Gunditjmara community engineering a really big landscape around short-finned eels. Yeah. There are 350 recorded stone house sites on the cultural landscape and they're all attached to huge swamps that were formed by the eruption of Burj Bim, formerly known as Mount Eccles. Yeah. So, yeah, it's this cool place, right, where it, it's- in southwestern Victoria. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to learn more about the stone houses. But looking them up, they, they create these kind of like ring stone walls that are a few feet high, maybe, you know, one and a half, two feet high. And then they have a sort of timber branch structure over the top with bark so that mm. they can obviously live in these sort of small- um, houses, and I wonder if the rocks stay there permanently, and they can just come back with oh, wood I suspect so. and yeah. just recreate them each yeah. season. When but they, they also used to build eel traps, yeah. So when they, they come build, to build stone walls inside the stream, yeah, uh, which narrows the um, the stream width, mm-hmm. uh, and then they used to build um, little wooden. Um, fish traps, mm-hmm. and they would set them in the narrow gaps that they'd built. And these things uh, look like a then, sock, right? A long yeah, sock yeah. that would be made out of reeds or something yeah. that would have the water funneled, that would obviously allow the water to go th- in and through it, mm. but the eel would get the stuck. The eel get stuck. 
Yeah, so um, so they'd capture these eels as they were heading downstream. And that was about as, like, advanced um, agriculturally as the Indigenous Australians got, right, down here in southwest mm. Victoria, which is something we should probably be proud of ge- geographically, that they created these stone complex complexes, these structures mm. that obviously were used by generation after generation. I think they were- I think we did a, a an article on this a while back. They dated back to like at least seven or eight thousand years, right? uh, or thirty thousand years. Oh, was it even longer uh, than that? Jesus, well, okay. Certainly, uh, not necessarily the building of eel traps, but um, no, the stone but structures. The, yeah, and but the people living around Lake Condor, I think, is or what mm-hmm. we call Lake Condor. Um, I can't remember the indigenous name for it, but um, there has there have been um, continuous uh, occupation of that land for about thirty thousand years. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely thousands of years. I'm not sure exactly how um, long, but yeah, at, at this area, some of them, well, some it, of the it, things have been radiocarbon dated to seven thousand. Yeah, years. and it will be around that six to seven thousand years because that's the uh, that they would have been trapping fish mm-hmm. because that's when the land bridge was created between Victoria and Tasmania. Yeah, um, which meant that or disappeared. Sorry, from between Victoria and, and um, Tasmania. True. Which meant that we then had the shallow water Bass Strait um, that would have allowed those fish migrations to um, to occur because before that um, that area wouldn't have had the same level of estuarine environments to have those fish in it. Well, so. it's, it's crazy to think that Port Phillip Bay was originally just this massive green- it's the Yarra River. Yeah. What was a, what would it have been? Like an just outlet flood of the plane. Yarra Reef floodplain yeah. with loads of kangaroos and, and yeah. it would have been like a hunting ground, yeah, a huge floodplain. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, and it would have been crazy to think that there were probably people who migrated across from mainland Australia to Tasmania across that land bridge, you know, obviously if they well, had they gotten there in the first yeah, place. But exactly. I, you wonder if they did that seasonally, mm. you know, or had connections and- the number of places that must have had Indigenous people living there that are now underwater. You know, you're kind of like, it's sad that we won't probably ever know oh, about no, all exactly. these locations yeah. that they would have frequented yeah. To, yeah. to hunt, to live, to, to love, to do mm. all of those things. And look, there are other migration uh, things around uh, that you know, Bass Strait migration, um, where you look at it now, if we have birds that um, overwinter in Victoria that mm-hmm. breed in summer in Tasmania. Well, these are swift parrots? Um, well, swift parrots, uh, orange-bellied parrots. Um, we have a lot of you know, little tiny birds, little tiny bush birds that come from Tasmania um, in north to Victoria in the winter because mm-hmm. it's just too cold for them, obviously, well, in you Tasmania. Would, you would guess that would have evolved. And that would have evolved because they clearly would have just migrated up and down the yeah. coastline yeah, through um, the, or across the bush. The land that was there um, originally. Yeah, and then you know, over a period of a few hundred years- <laughs> Yeah. Um, became islands. It became <laughs> islands and then it just became sea. And so yeah. now we have these, these birds that um, have to migrate across you know, some of the most dangerous sea- in the world, mm-hmm. uh, from a point of view of storms and things, because it's it's stuck out into the Southern Ocean, but it's shallow water, so you know, you get these you know storms and really big waves and all sorts of things in the in Bass Strait, uh, but these little birds flying across it, and you go, surely you can find somewhere in northern Tasmania, but it's yeah. just this evolutionary pressure that for tens or hundreds of thousands of years. Their ancestors have just flown that far north, and they keep doing it, even though now they have to fly 150 kilometres across the sea. Yeah, yeah they might stop at King Island for a while, but yeah, you know, it's uh, 
yeah, it's a it's a bizarre one, but it's that yeah you know, evolutionary pressure of yeah you know, we've always done this, so we will keep doing it. Well, and it's working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're still alive. Well, it works until <laughs> you get to the point of like swift parrots and um, yeah, orange belly parrots are two of the most endangered bird species in Australia. And part of that reason is, I suspect, is that they actually struggle with this migration. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a whole lot of you know, environmental reasons of you know, environmental destruction, habitat destruction, that yeah. means that they no longer have places to well, yeah, feed if when they get here. already on the edge. Exactly. Then yeah. destroying the habitat um, that either they nest bre- in or eat yeah. in is going to push them over. Well, that was a good episode. Just a quickie. Anything else to say? No, having Anything a drink. Sorry, you're cooking with my mouthful. With your pants down? <laughs> metaphorically (laughs) alright well thanks for hanging out guys and we'll chat to you next time ciao see ya